You're listening to the Sisteria Summer Series. I'm Steph Van Schilt, and back in July, I sat down with Sydney-based musician Rainbow Chan on a sunny Melbourne morning. We literally sat on the floor of her manager's lounge room, cross-legged on a cool shag pile rug, and discussed everything from her show the night before at the NGV, her new album Pillar, and working on interdisciplinary art projects with her mum. I started off by thanking Rainbow for being the generous artist behind Sisteria's theme music. Thanks so much for having us, Vivian. We're in the lounge room, sitting on the floor, talking with Rainbow Chan and I just want to officially thank you on record for being our amazing musician behind our theme music. Thank you. She's going to perform it like, no. <laughs> la, 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 la. Oh my God, that's so cool. <laughs> and thank you, that's all we needed to do. <laughs> no, thanks so much for chatting with us. It's honestly so generous. We get such good feedback about the theme music. It's so catchy, like all of your music. And you're just releasing a new album. You're in Melbourne from Sydney at the moment. That's right, yes. Promoting that. Yeah, so the new album is called Pillar. There are 10 songs on there. And the writing process of this album, I guess, spanned since, well, the last record that came out, Spacings. And in hindsight, it seems like a long time, but I guess because my life has been so busy and I've picked up a lot of different practices or kind of diversified my artistic practice so I I've been so busy that um this record is I guess part of the process of that a wider more holistic kind of process which has actually made it really really fun and satisfying like I feel like it didn't necessarily have a single kind of end goal in mind but uh ironically it's kind of come out more coherent in that in that way, it's just a bit more kind of reflective of my life. Three years is a long time. Yeah, it is, isn't it? That kids start going to preschool and stuff in that time. <laughs> like, or they start from being like a tiny little nugget to something that can speak. Yeah, and, run around, and you're like, right? stop chatting back at me, yeah. you little nugget. Is this, is this your baby? <laughs> uh, I guess, yeah. Um, well, it's mine, but also I feel like I keep, I keep doing this. I keep comparing this record to the last record. I mean, it kind of makes sense that you just learn from every time you put out something. But spacings felt quite insular and very in my own head because it's essentially a breakup album. It's very emotional. It's very emotional. And I really, if, if I felt all of those things like so deeply when I was writing it. And, I, you know, I was a bit younger and I feel like it was a rite of passage. And those songs still resonate with me. Like it's very like emotional every time I listen to it. But having gone through all of that and then trying to pick up the pieces and rebuild and um, I guess think about just wider issues as as I get older I kind of feel like I can't be stuck in my head anymore we're kind of facing all these different social political struggles and I know I'm like someone that's in a very privileged country and position but obviously with its own issues it just felt necessary to kind of look a bit further in my own um, artistic practice Um, and that manifested in me taking a few different or participating in a few different artist residencies uh, one in China and um, one in Taiwan and also I did a lot of traveling back to Hong Kong and in doing that I guess it's just broadening my thinking and trying to situate like my songs and my work in a wider conversation especially about people of the diaspora 
and then thinking about belonging and thinking about like just gender and power and <laughs> all these different issues and I think they manifest themselves in the songs on Pillar. So you did travel a lot while you were also writing and you're originally you were born in Hong Kong is that correct? That's right yeah and I moved to Australia with my family when I was six years old. I have a lot of extended family and my sister still lives in Hong Kong or she moved back there for work and so I have a lot of connections there and a lot of roots. Part of I guess what is um, very important on this album was a process of me trying to uh, reconnect with my Hong Kong heritage. My mum speaks a Hong Kong dialect, indigenous dialect called Waitao, which is a subset of Cantonese. And well, in the 60s, the schools were trying to phase out like any other dialects, like Elsa Hakka was another big one that people started to like not encouraged to be spoken. So essentially, yeah, my mum only spoke this dialect to her family and growing up we like would only hear her every now and then just saying little bits and pieces and but I became really curious, especially after I started a master's as well in fine art and looking at like globalization and consumer culture and the counterfeit as an object that reflects like creativity in the context of like contemporary China, but also as revealing like different global economic and socio-political like relations. Anyway, so in in this side research of kind of globalized culture, I really started to think about local culture. And so my interest in the dialect stemmed from that. And I wanted to ask my mum, like, can you teach me a few words? And she was like, you know what? One of the quickest way for you to pick this up is if you learn some of the folk songs. She was like, I can't actually, I don't know any of the folk songs. I've heard people sing it in the past, but I know that there is some music there. Why don't you like try and do a bit of research in that? So that took me on a journey to go back to Hong Kong and visit an auntie who has connections to a few of the village elders who know these songs. And at first I was like, I was like listening to recordings and CDs. And then like a year later, after I kind of like learned a few things from the recordings, I actually met them in person and they were so welcoming. There was about 10 of them, 10 um, grannies, and they just immediately welcomed me, put a little like farming hat on my head and was like you're one of us and it was amazing oh my god I really had to like hold back from tears because I was just like I was like who is this person like from Australia flying in just being like hello like let me party with you guys and And they're they're like yes and they're like we've been waiting for so long (laughs) totally yeah it was like it was so warm and yeah now it's like probably been about a year since I've met them and the community center and social workers who have been like helping them to like uh, run this like development project in archiving their songs their stories they've just recently made their own documentary and published a two-volume book that is from the perspectives of the elderly women and about their arranged marriages and the music that would they were called bridal laments because you wouldn't be happy about your marriage you would you would mourn it you would see it as a process of shedding your identity as a daughter and becoming a wife, but also that you would never belong to the new family as well. You were essentially kind of this like servant to your to your husband and to your in-laws. 
So it was like a three-day weeping performative musical ritual. So the book and the documentary documents that. That's incredible. I have read the folk songs are pretty feminist. So yeah, yeah, because they were written and sung and shared by women amongst women. The men were taught how to read and write and women shared knowledge through oral traditions. So you would kind of go to, they called them sister houses. So it would be like someone's house in the village, usually like a a widow or or like an older auntie that maybe uh, doesn't have her own kids. And then the girls would go over there, hang out and like learn all these skills and from the auntie and then they would like do some chores for her because she doesn't have her own kids. And so, yeah, it just sounds like, I mean, it's easy to also like romanticize and um, the past and like definitely like I'm kind of seeing it from this outsider's perspective, but seeing it from their perspective and hearing them firsthand talk about it was really moving and to hear it embodied in the songs and for me to then sing the songs and then also teach it back to my mum who heard her mum singing it like it's just like chilling and super special um and so on the on pillar there is a song called lull which is a lullaby so this one's less like sacred it's just like a little folk song and at the beginning of the of the track you can hear three people singing and it's a phone recording of me my mom and my auntie learning the um, lullaby from a cd (laughs) and and we're kind of um yeah they're teaching me like the pronunciation and what all the words mean and stuff but then like we're all kind of like learning the melody together and and then once I learned this and on my second visit back to Hong Kong I sang it back to the elders who had recorded the cd and it was so uncanny because they're like you know the song and i was like oh yes i've been listening like religiously to it over the last year and that was really cool but yeah and then i thought oh what's something that i could do to kind of make this heard and relevant i guess like or as someone of white hell background like how could i extend this in a way that celebrates the culture so i thought i'll make it into a club track why not? Like the kind of paradox of it being a lullaby, but I want it to be like an awakening and that folk culture or indigenous culture doesn't have to belong behind glass in a museum. Like it should be lived and celebrated. And so by making this rendition or this reimagining of it, I I just feel really happy when I play it. And also hopefully like that the wider struggles, the wider voices are being heard and you know I'm really appreciative of like spaces like this like interviews and like longer form publications that are able to facilitate the conversations around it as well because someone could hear the song and just be like whatever I'm just gonna mix it into my podcast or my my DJ mix and like never think about what's behind the meaning and I mean I don't I can't control what people are going to do when they react to it, but my my hope is that they will dig a little deeper and be intrigued and and make it like more meaningful by by reading about it or, or listening at least. But what I was thinking about while you were talking about oral history and indigenous languages is we've also spoken with Mojo Juju about indigenous heritage and trying to bring an understanding to native languages through music there seems to be kind of a a movement and I think for me I'm a massive pop music fan as I sit here in my Beyonce sweatshirt people amazing by the way I've been looking at glistening in the sun all morning it's all her 
there people often frown upon like pop music and you and your publicity are quoted as an experimental pop musician or you're creating experimental pop music do you think it is a good vessel for people to start having these conversations and to you know I guess remix for lack of a better term the concept of the oral history and the folk music and history I guess I think by using pop music as the medium it's a provocation because as you as you said like there is this stigma towards pop music as being very shallow or commercial or superficial but at the same time it is one format that we're so immediately attracted to or it's also quite democratic like it's not an elitist form you don't have to go to university to understand it um so I think that there's a lot of power and mobilizing power because of that however I do think that it's important to make sure that as the person is producing the the work to always interrogate like why and what and what responsibilities you have in disseminating whatever messages you're trying to say in your pop song because I think it's so easy for it to go wrong as well like you know you have there's just too many examples of bad cultural appropriation techno indigenous like uh, like didgeridoo tracks on top of you know like a a beat and it's just come from this very unaware and offensive position so I think with regards to like the movement to try and push First Nations languages or folk languages to to the front I think what's exciting is seeing it being like reclaimed by people from those backgrounds and framing it in a way that's like doesn't have to be separate it doesn't have to be like this is a song in is that plane yeah. <laughs> Rainbow's traveling again she just hopped on a plane <laughs> oh, oh no, no dog dog. <laughs> got it all yeah I think what's exciting is that when you see artists people of color from those from those backgrounds and having agency and reclaiming those stories and being like no this is actually how I want to present it and this is my lived embodied experiences that's when it's really fulfilling and rewarding and dynamic and real the problem is when it's like an outsider or someone not knowing and then just taking and and not giving back like I think that's where like some questions need to be like asked do you feel that there's a lot of pressure on you to do the right thing essentially and I know that you just said you know you left Hong Kong when you were quite young and then you came back and you feel like a bit of an outlier coming back in as like an Australian how, how does that weigh on you when you're making your work and talking about your work it weighs on me every day. <laughs> I I think about it a lot. Maybe sometimes to a fault, like I'm just like. <laughs> but I also think that it's important. It's it's good that I'm like always questioning because I don't want to just slip into something where I become unaware of. And it's not so much like oh I'm really scared of call out culture and I'm scared of like offending people. It's more like I everybody has a responsibility to be like just adhering to like cultural protocols, you know? So I think I've really maybe that's why it's taken me 3 years to like put out this track because it couldn't have happened any other way. Like it, I couldn't have just gone in learned it, put it out like the next day, you know, pop it onto the internet for free download kind of thing. Like I I really had to consider, like, I don't know, spending time on a major work or something, like 
I feel like the, the level of research and the level of trust that had to be built with the communities that supported me and in myself as well, trusting myself to do the right thing with it. Conversations and, and, and knowing that it will be continuing into longer form, sustainable projects and collaborations. That's what gave me the confidence to be like, cool, okay, I'm ready to, to do this. You talk about other major works, you work across mediums, and I know that you have collaborated with your mum before, this track isn't the first time. Can you talk a little bit about your other work as an artist and also working with your mum? She's so sweet. Um, Yeah, it's a bit of a sensitive topic. (laughs) Where is that? (laughs) Well, I came out of her womb. I love you, (laughs) mum. So the project that I really, like, put my mum at the front and centre of the work was called A Kingdom of Flowers for My Mother. And it's a installation work with two-channel video loop and also a sound piece with an interview an interview with myself and my mum and some singing that we're doing together. And the installation comprises of 144 handmade flowers that I have based on traditional like architecture of Waitau houses that ornaments like floral ornaments that like go underneath the roof and they're made out of latex this kind of fleshy colored latex and they've been smoked and the reason why there are flowers and 144 of them was my mom as a kid growing up in poverty it was very common for people to kind of source like cheap labor, child labor for exports. And so plastic flowers was like a huge export product in Hong Kong. And the man who owned the biggest company, Le Garsing is his name, is now the richest man, I think, in Asia. And so to think that like my mum literally like contributed to his wealth but like obviously like for 144 flowers you would get 30 cents or something like that or like a dollar or something it was like really really meager and so my mom's got seven the seven kids in her family and then and so there would be this kind of like Like um, factory line like factory line so be like okay sister one has to like put on the leaves and sister two has to like put on the stem and blah, blah, blah and pass that along and then mom was so much you know her little fingers are like callous and so the amount of times that they would like count the flowers up to like 144 okay great that's like one basket okay next one next one so I was like it took me so long to make 144 flowers and I was just like my god like how many times does she have to do that in as an adult yeah in Australia yeah just like chilling with my air conditioning like like, oh my god get a manicure after (laughs) (laughs) totally so like I I mean I saw it as a gesture to as my gift back to my mom being like okay, this is, I, I hope that, you know, you've made a lot of sacrifices and for me to have this like beautiful life now here is, you know, it's because of you and like my dad as well. And, and I'd really like to involve you in this conversation and in my art practice, which 
I couldn't have done without their support and um you know they never tried to like stop me or question me like I know especially with a lot of like immigrant kids that like the parents like I work so hard you want to become an artist you want to be a musician are you kidding me lawyer doctor accountant (laughs) dentist yeah Um, totally and like I mean my I feel like my elder sister kind of got that treatment but then like I kind of my other sister was a bit more creative and you know I I got like it was like yeah you do whatever you want now so you're the youngest sister and the second youngest so my little sister my youngest sister she just like she could do she could just cruise her whole life like yeah (laughs) (laughs) not really she's gonna be like that's not true (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so um that was kind of like the first work that I made that really involved my mum funnily enough she was like really shy about it like on opening night she was like oh I think I'll just I'll just go another night because like she she was like I've never seen my face on HD TV so like crisp <laughs> I mean she looked beautiful but I can totally understand like she's like she wouldn't want to be like surrounded by all these like young cool hip people and like there she is kind of thing but they did like see the work afterwards and they're like well, cool like this is nice and I've tried to like invite her to like public workshops and and yeah she's like really like really embraced that and we were on um national radio together um and she's really loved it she was just like wow I can't believe you know I she like she didn't finish school like she had after she finished primary school she had to look for work it was just it's crazy to think about her situation and where I am now and that's within like you know one family's history um and so I it just it's making me think a lot more about intergenerational conversations I don't think we really do enough as young people as well yeah sometimes it is hard to incorporate them though I know that yeah like you were saying your mum was kind of humble and didn't really want to be in the spotlight when you were incorporating her and sometimes I think part of that work ethic and that upbringing is so deeply inbuilt that they don't want to interrogate it themselves. They're like, let's keep moving, you do your thing. Yeah, and I totally respect, like, I I also feel very lucky that I have a really good, close relationship with my parents. And, you know, sometimes I do think about, like, me talking about my parents all the time and whether for people who might have really strained relationships with their family, like, maybe it's hard to hear about other things like this or like me not flaunting but being like yeah I love my mum or people who've lost their parents or you know all these other situations but it's not all on you though I know I know (laughs) I know but it does make me think like okay cool like that's why I'm just like very grateful I feel very grateful for the positions I'm in and I hope that it just keeps uh, deepening or extending conversations that everybody can have so you aren't like your mum. You were in a big gallery last night performing. I went to see you at the National Gallery of Victoria. I don't want to slur that. I worked there many years ago. <laughs> Andrew Bay. Andrew Bay. <laughs> and you performed in the Great Hall. There was the Terracotta Warriors yes. exhibition on. What was it like performing in that space? It looked incredible, the lighting, and you uh, were solo on stage with couple of mics, your little setup and dancing around. And my friend Caroline, shout out, I know you listen to this hysteria. Um, we were just like, Rainbow Chan is so cool. <laughs> I was like, I'm actually genuinely intimidated to go and speak to her tomorrow. Because you just looked so incredible. Your style, the performance was on point. I want to know what the performance felt like in that space, particularly because it is such an esteemed kind of high culture place in Australia. But also I did want to talk to you a little bit about style and how mm-hmm. that impacts, the visual aesthetics impacts your performances and I guess 
as a sonic artist primarily, how the visual elements kind of impact your work? Well, last night was bloody great. I have to say, like, I, I feel like I came away from that. Sometimes, like, after you, I don't know, after performing quite a lot, it's, it's, it becomes, you know, just work sometimes. But last night was, I, I really felt very warm and very special. And the space was, was that just the dumplings as well? There yeah, were some delicious dumplings yes, there. such delicious dumplings. Like, oh, the shalombar with the exploding soup. Oof, it was just divine. But, yeah, it felt really cool like the space was dressed up so nicely and the team at NGV were really professional and amazing just like diligent amazing technical skills but the audience was also really lovely like they were just very generous with their attention and and I think that's something that I've really like uh, when I perform now I am not afraid of doing quieter songs and or telling stories and stuff I used to think like no like everyone just wants to like dance 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 and it's gonna be like at a hundred the whole time but I feel like I take more liberties to kind of take my time now and, and really make the set have ebbs and flows. And in terms of the style, yesterday I was wearing a mesh turtleneck with a Chinese calligraphy on it. It's from a brand called Yup Pit, which are run by two really lovely friends of mine in Hong Kong. They draw inspiration from a lot of retro or nostalgic imagery, from especially from like Hong Kong cinema. So they really love Wong Kar Wai, of course. And the, sh- and the shirt I was wearing, the mesh top, calligraphy on it is a poem that they've written um, as an ode to the suburb that their warehouse is in their studio so it's called Samsung Pole and it's historically it's been kind of a bit of a shady area like it's like used to be a lot of crime there and stuff but now there's a lot of sort of fabric merchants there and so they yeah just got a an older friend of theirs to like do the calligraphy and then they got it printed on the shirt and I don't know it just feels very it feels very lovely to wear things that friends have made and also that's an artwork in itself I'm so this is why you ask questions all the time I was like she looks hot this is cool <laughs> look at that style and you're like I was actually wearing a poem I'm like that <laughs> yeah, is incredible right. I was wearing a poem <laughs> a, a skin colored mesh poem that just, looked hot yeah. what more does you know can a person ask for and yeah and then the pants you know they're like black flares uh, dress up melvin local designer yeah you do a lot of shoots with the articles that come out as well that are incredible like just visually so stunning to look at what is it like doing that when you are so used to overthinking things in your head and and writing songs and being in a studio and then you're before a camera and you're kind of performing in a different way what what is that like Mm, I think all the thinking behind the camera helps has helped to make me feel more comfortable in front in front of the camera because I'm not deliberating things so much. I don't feel like I'll be swept away in like accidentally doing something that doesn't actually represent me. Whereas like when I was younger, I'd probably say yes to everything and then kind of have a few regrets. Like, oh no, I shouldn't have done that. But also I work with generally like quite a close group of people and collaborators over the different projects and keep building those relationships. So one collaborator 
who I love working with is Hun Lee, who is a photographer, filmmaker, has done a lot of my video clips and she's shot the um, album cover for Pillar and the photo shoot around that. And she's got a really distinct eye for color and detail. It always looks like very pearlescent and glossy and soft feminine, but at the same time, like really like striking and dynamic, which I love about her, her style. And then Al Joel is another artist that I've been collaborating with and she does production and costume design and has worked on styling for a few of my videos now and also the cover. And Maggie Wu is also amazing makeup hair and runs her own like street casting agency now with a friend trying to promote more uh, culturally diverse artists and people to be models so yeah I feel like I really trust those three collaborators in particular to deliver and execute my vision in a stylistically and aesthetically pleasing way I did it would be remiss to ask if I didn't bring it up and kind of going back to the wearing of the poem and the designers that you were talking about you obviously go back to Hong Kong quite a bit have you been there since the protests and during the protests at all I haven't been able to go back since and but I I know that I will some point in the future and it's such a complicated and complex issue Um, I'm really um, I guess invested in seeing how it's going to unravel and I personally am still trying to understand what's going on and all the layers and all the different parties and people with you know an interest at what's at stake so um, I feel like I'm I'm still needing to do a lot of reading. What is on for the rest of the day so I do often wonder and you kind of touched on it that now you, when you perform live, you consider it in a different way than what you once did. You're like, this is work. I know that when I, like, I'm doing just an in conversation with someone famous and I'm speaking in front of like 500 people, my adrenaline goes through the roof and I crash out so hard afterwards. Do you have those picks and troughs still? Like, are you just going to take it easy today after performing last night? Yeah, well, if take it easy means interview and then photo shoot and then another um, meeting, <laughs> then yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, like I, I think I, I definitely, there's stuff on, but I allow myself to just be very like chill and quiet and do like just easy tasks. Because I think in the past I never, like I never considered like adrenaline and kind of like looking after yourself and um, I'm just like, yeah, go, 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 go. And obviously... It's not sustainable. So I just, I'm really enjoying just being able to like sit somewhere and like enjoy the sun or like do really slow, quiet things, even if it's just like, I don't know. I I love reading. I really love reading, especially books. Just like the feel, I mean, the feel of it, the page in your hand and like, um, yeah, just really slow, therapeutic, kind of cathartic things, I think is what I like to do after gigs. And chicken nuggets (laughs) (laughs) well on that thank you so much for joining us today and thank you to your manager for having us in your lounge room it's been an absolute pleasure you're incredible everyone has to listen to the new album and thank you again for giving us this amazing theme music thank you (laughs) 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 (laughs)
Sisteria is produced by Stephanie Van Schilt and me, Jessica Luciano. For links to everything we've discussed, check out our website, sisteriapodcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at SisteriaPod. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And if you love what we do, we'd love for you to leave us a review on iTunes too. Our amazing theme music is by Rainbow Chan. Sisteria is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and to the elders of the lands this podcast reaches. We hope you tune in again soon. I just go-